Chad, did you hear the way she sold that? Like, we're going to get together as women and grow spiritually, and the men are going to break stuff on their trip. It's <laughs> Wow. Well, I want to welcome you all this morning. My name is Ryan Grable, and I feel too far away. Yeah, is that much better? You guys want to see this more? Okay, sure. Um, well, if you're new here, and I think a few of you are, I've met a couple of you, I want to tell you thank you for coming to the church this morning. Thank you for trying out this church and seeing maybe if this is where God wants you to be. I know that you're on a journey and you're searching for a church, and so I pray that we're, if it's not here, that God roots you into the community that, that, that really is, is, is where he wants you and to be effective for him. And, um, but we would love to have you here. And, uh, and if you have any questions about anything about our church, just please let us know. Afterwards, I want to invite you. We're going to be eating food, and you can get to connect with more people in the church. And we're going to be celebrating some baptisms, which is really an amazing, amazing thing. You know, <laughs> baptism, I remember growing up as a kid, and everyone tried to baptize me as a kid, but I... I didn't want to be baptized as a kid. Does this make, did anybody have this experience? And I felt like anytime baptisms were happening, it was like, are you going in? And I'm like, no, I'm not going in. And it was like just something that wasn't, wasn't for me at that time until I became a believer. And when I was 19, I became a Christian, and it was this natural thing to celebrate for me. I knew that it wasn't what was going to transform my life. I knew that. I just knew, though, at that baptism, like some of you are going to experience today, that it was symbolic because especially I think I felt like there was a life I was living that, 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 had, that had died, that I was reborn and I was alive. And I knew that from this moment, the moment I gave my life to Christ, that I was going to go a new path in life. And the baptism was this significant moment for me in front of my family and friends and used-to-be critics watching me get baptized. And I was so excited, and I think I've told you guys this before, that I literally almost killed the pastor by electrocuting him to death because I was so happy. I hugged him, pulled him in with his microphone in the water. So if you want to do that to me, Chloe, today... I don't have a microphone. You can't kill me today. It, it was just a, it, it was a, I knew what it meant. And I think you'll know what it means today, you, David, um, that today's a new chapter in a way for all of us to celebrate for you, that God is going to be beginning a new work of transforming your life in the way you live in the, in, in the life and the path that he has for you. I want to read this. It's in Romans 6, 4 about baptism. This is the Apostle Paul, and he's writing. It's one of the most significant thoughts I think we can have as we're celebrating out here today and what we're witnessing together. It says, we were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death. We were buried there. Who we were, the life we lived, the death that we walked in every day is now buried in that water metaphorically buried spiritually that was done and it says in order that just as christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the father we too might walk in a newness of life 
this what we call sanctification. We're walking into a newness of life. Your road won't be perfect. You will have ups and downs and trials and struggles and, and doubts. But you're walking in a newness and a new path of life. And all of us who have been baptized, we know what this means. We know that, that, that we can look back and go back that that's where symbolically I rose. And God put us on a new path. So I'm going to pray before we get into the message and pray particularly for those who are being baptized. God, we come to you and we thank you for resurrection life. Jesus, thank you for dying on the cross and rising showing us how to live this spiritual life. And God, we thank you so much that you have provided a way where it felt like there was no other way. You've brought a path and that those who are being baptized today have chosen that path. And as brothers and sisters of our fellow baptists out there, and God, that we celebrate with them as a family. Because we are all one under you. That's where our identity comes from. That's who we are. And so, God, I thank you for that. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Um, well, this week, if you were here last week, you, you don't have to worry. If you just came today, you, we are in the middle of Acts, and we are working our way through the entire book. And what we did is last week we, we read chapter 13. And chapter 13 was the beginning of Paul's first missionary journey. Last week we talked about a lot about what he endured in all of his journeys. I've been reading so much about Apostle Paul that I just feel like to me I've gained such a, a, such a great respect for the work that he did. I want to be like that. I think we should all want to be, like, walk in that way of someone who is following Christ, and we follow the example that he set. I, I, I don't, I can't say that Christianity wouldn't be the same if Paul didn't step in the gap like he did, but I am so thankful that he did. He fought, he fought, we'll get into this a lot next week, he fought for grace under, under, under Christ. He fought for being justified through faith. He fought for being able to just fully be who you are and how God made you, but alive in Christ. He fought that it is not through action and deed and works and, and all these rituals that how you gain your faith and maintain your faith. It's through your faith and trust in Christ alone. So as I've learned so much about Paul, I've gained a lot about for his appreciate, my appreciation for him and his missionary journeys. In Acts chapter 14, we're going to finish his first missionary journey, which was, we think, roughly about a year long. And, and there's two things we're going to see. We're going to look at this passage, and it's not just a story or a narrative. We're going to look at this, and maybe with a different lens, and I want us to see something that's happening that's shaping a lot of the writings of Paul. What Paul begins to write to with the churches, particularly in this area in Galatians, we're seeing him writing to responses to what's, what, what's going on within the culture of the Christians there that he leaves behind after this chapter. 
But we're going to deal with something that becomes very prevalent within Scripture. And we're going to see this. Two main things we're going to see. Paul had many goals on his missionary journey, but two of them into the Gentiles to mean anyone non-Jewish or not from Judea. This mission, you're going to see these main key factors, three of them particularly. One, you're going to see to tear down idols. It's going to be in almost every missionary journey. It's going to be in almost every sermon. Tear down idols. And the second part is to present the truth in the gospel that there is a way beyond the idols. And the third way is to live out of that truth in a way that transforms your life. That's the very simple way that you'll see all of the rest of Acts take shape because he's preaching to a Gentile world that has been accustomed to following idolatry, putting their trust in things that are meaningless. So the first thing we're going to see is we're going to see in this chapter is that Paul encourages them to trade their lies in for truth. I think that's what we did. I traded my lies in for truth, the things I thought would make me happy that didn't. Some of you will relate to this that you've ch you chased down certain things you thought would make you happy so far, you realize they made you so miserable. Have you ever been there? You're trading a truth. You're trading in for truth, real truth. The second thing we're going to see out of this, what we're going to read today, is that, that Paul begins to shape culture by the gospel and through the gospel and not the other way around. There's always the temptation to let culture shape the gospel. And we must be like Paul in that way that he never let culture shape the gospel. He let the gospel shape the culture. By the way, so much so, we're going to read in the next couple weeks, that whole cities rioted against the Christian movement that was beginning to grow because they lost sales in idols. Their shop owners were like, well, this isn't good. We're selling less idols. It was transforming the culture. And we're going to see this happen here in just a little bit. I titled this message, Inanimate Objects. And, it, and these are these things that hold our attention, our affection, our love. Sometimes we give that glory that it's not due. If you could be thinking about one thing, and I tried to think about how do I capture this in a phrase, and I would just say it this way, is that this is a message that we're going to look at loosening the grip of idolatry in exchange for faith in Christ alone. Now, I know nobody in here that I know of came in and they have a little idol on their mantle that their family gets around and goes, praise be to idol. I know we're not in that world right now, not in the United States. I know that's not the case in some homes, but not, not what we're talking about here with our group here. But we're, we're captured by a lot of other things that will pull our heart. And I want to I want to present to you a, a, a real look at how God feels about idolatry, and especially when we read this little section. Listen to what John Calvin said. He said, for what is idolatry if not this, the worship of gifts in place of the giver himself? Now that's a good one to remember. The worship of things that God has provided for us in place of God himself, where someone is like, God, please, God, make my business successful. Help me, God. I'm, I, I need your hand of blessing upon me. It becomes a blessing, and then it's like, we don't have time for God anymore. Thanks, God. Appreciate it. See you when I have cancer. I'll be back again. This is how it works. 
That's not, that's not at all what God has in store for his people and has for a real thriving life, is that type of mentality. But to them, of that day, they did trade the things that God provided for them naturally, so they took stones that they could have shaped into homes, and they built them into idols and temples to serve a false god. They took wood that God provided that they could use in many different ways. It was a blessing. And they made idols that they could worship in order to be in good graces. They look at creation all around them, and people would worship the creation itself and not honor the creator. And I, I think this is true. It's not those things that are the problem. It's what we make them to be becomes the problem. Today, it's just not any different. I made a little list here, just in case you wondered. Um, we will struggle with the worship of self. I, would, I put this number one in my list. Self-worship. And I think we can disguise it in a lot of different ways. Of like, well, I'm just loving choosing myself, right? I'm just backing myself. I just have to self-love. And there's a lot of importance about, about really... Not rejecting yourself, but really embracing yourself. But we have seen it go to another level where it becomes worship in its own. I think, oof, I didn't want to put this on my list. But our phones. Oh. If you didn't like this church, this is probably a good time and a reason to leave the church. Because it, it, I'm going to hit something that's very sensitive to a lot of people and, and very convicting for my, not just myself, but... A lot of us. It's as our phone, the worship of this object. <laughs> we, we look to it. Have you ever lost your phone? I have seen people search for their phone more frantically than a lost child. <laughs> oh, where's my phone? Where's my phone? Oh, where's my phone? I can't find my phone. Oh, wow. <laughs> Calm down. How about sports? We know a lot more about statistics than we know about even the intricacy of the gospel. We have proselytized or converted more people to our team than we have to our faith. Our career, our money. I think even famous figures, maybe in our culture more than ever, we worship fame and figures. I, I think some people would literally follow people blindly because they just so worship the person. This is, we live in, don't live in a different time. Please don't disconnect yourself from scripture when we read some of this. We face the same issues today. And the same method is needed for our culture today. Tear down the idols. Hear the truth. And then live out in that truth. Transform culture. I was looking at some interesting things. I will pick on the phone just for a minute. I don't know if you know this, but since the selfie was invented, all 259 people have died taking selfies. Did you know that? I don't know how they died. I can assume lots of ways. And those are only the reported deaths. Dozens of people die each year trying to retrieve their phone that they dropped in the street in traffic. On railroad tracks, I don't know how it happens. In front of a train going by, and they thought, I better get my phone before the train crushes it, and they die. A lady, I read this terrible story, her, her house was burning down, and she ran back into her house to retrieve her phone, and she died. A roller coaster, someone dropped it out, and it went underneath to go get it, and the roller coaster hit them. 
the phone. Now, I'm not saying this is a bad thing. We communicate. It's a wonderful thing. But there's an obsession that we have to be cautious of. I'm only picking on this one because we all have one. We don't all have a sports team, but we all have a phone. I was looking through this research and I kept seeing over and over helpline for those who are addicted to their phone. Helpline after helpline after helpline. And I was blown away because I thought, oh my gosh, there's a huge, huge problem with people and their addiction to their phone. This is just one of many things that I could pull out of in culture that I have to continually remind us, and the scripture does, that we want to keep these things in check and not put God here and all these other things here. And we can't be fooled that Paul went into cultures and said, listen, you can keep your idol worship. It's, it's okay just as long as we just love God more. No. He went in and preached God, which was the very first of the commandments that no God should be before him. It's a big part. I, I just want to show you something really quick. You can put it up on the slides. We can rifle through these. I did the work for you, so you don't have to do it, but I just want to show you something to how big of a deal idolatry is to God. There are 304 verses, of which I just went ahead and read them all and tried to get a summary of what does God really think about idolatry. And I just, can I give you my summary, my conclusion? He doesn't like it. He just doesn't like it. You can rifle through them on the screen there if you want. There are so many, there's so many different subjects, all the way from warnings against it to what its effect is on you, all the different ways people are engaging in it. God does not like idolatry. And I think it's important for Christians that we know this. And I have a list, and you can get it from Taylor if you want to read through all those. But it's something that we have to see that, that Paul is not hesitant to come and tear down idols. He didn't physically tear them down. He tore down their power over people. And us as believers, we have to be mindful of that. Now, you got to know this, though. Paul was raised in a city called Tarsus that was second to Athens in its intellectual pursuits of that time. Paul was raised in a city that was dominated by idols. So this was not new to him. He wasn't shocked whatsoever. He also, the church of headquarters in Antioch in Syria, was a mecca of idol worship. They didn't just allow one. They allowed the Roman gods. They allowed the Greek gods. They allowed the Syrian gods. And they had Egyptian gods. They had gods all over the place where there was idol worship. But I think that every time Paul saw a dead, useless idol it broke his heart because there's someone worshiping it. I think Paul is on a relentless pursuit, led by the Spirit, to literally terraform the ancient world to the kingdom. And we see that it happened. The, 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 the world we know was absolutely transformed by the gospel. That no other idol could stand before God. But let's not let us in today's culture that idol worship is calling your name let's not go back let's not make the mistake that the ancient world made where we're giving our hearts our affections our adoration our time attention our abilities to things that are worthless that don't do anything 
Listen to Romans 1.21. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as, as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for the images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. They gave up the immortal God for these things that were just images of things God made. Therefore, God gave them up to the lust of their hearts, to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. Verse 25, because they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. This was the very, one of the very hearts of Paul's mission was to show people the truth. So that they didn't waste their life worshiping useless, worthless things that will rot and die when the creator is standing by. So there's two things. One is we will see the main thought here. We'll get into it is lies for truth. This is what Paul is after. He's just been run out of a city in Antioch and he's on it. He went to another city in Iconium and was run out. And now he's at another city called Lystra. And they'll pick it up in verse 8. Now at Lystra there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking and, 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 and Paul looking intently at him and seeing that he had faith to be made well. And he said in a loud voice, stand upright on your feet. And he sprang up and he began to walk. This is very reminiscent of Acts chapter 3. Acts chapter 3, Peter does a very similar healing. And what's being told to the reader is that God takes impossible situations and makes them possible. God also cares about the life that we live now. That he, he, he healed this man so he could live this life. So it's not worthless, this life to God, or he wouldn't have healed this man. God cares about those who are in need. This, this says a lot about how we think about God and how we form our thoughts about God. But he stood up and he started walking. And remember, he's in a group of people who know nothing about God. They know nothing about Yahweh. They know nothing about Anything that Paul has come from. And Paul is speaking to fresh ears. And so here we go. Verse 11. And when the crowd saw that what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices saying in Lyconian, their own language. This isn't Latin. This isn't Greek. This is their own language. The gods have come down to us in the likeness of man. Barnabas, they called Zeus because he was older. And Paul, Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. Hermes, the god Hermes, was the messenger of the gods. And so they thought, what is going on here? Now, when we read this, we think, wow, they just like right away attached them that these were these gods. But if you do a very deep dive into history, there was an ancient poem wrote, uh, had been written by Ovid. And this poem said this. And it was very much, it shaped the entire city. And here's how it goes. Zeus and Hermes had come down to this city, Lystra. 
And that city, they went to look for a place to stay, but a thousand doors were shut in their face except for one old couple who, was, who, who met in the home that they're in, this little tiny straw house. They married in that home. They lived there, and they were much older. They welcomed them in. They fed them, showed them hospitality, and Zeus and Hermes were there and were blown away by their hospitality. And so... Because they welcomed them in, Zeus and Hermes led them out of the city, up on a mountaintop, looked down at the city and said, I will spare only you two. This whole city is going to be wiped out right now. And then, at, but their place, their little straw place, was raised up as a temple, right? So generations and generations later, this little story, this little poem, affected the entire community. Can you understand now why this community, when they saw them show up, thought instantly we need to sacrifice, we need to celebrate, we need to worship them because we do not want destruction to come upon us again. So they were shaped by that. Verse 13, and the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance of the city, brought the oxen, the garland to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. Now this guy is the, you, you know when you've been waiting to get in the game, and finally the coach calls you like Rudy and puts you in the game. This is what this, this is his moment. They built the temple at the gate of the city, for goodness sake. So that the Zeus and Hermes would see how much they were willing to welcome them. There would be a thousand doors shut in their face. He finally gets his chance. He comes out. He begins to start the worship. But you got to know this. Paul and Barnabas don't speak Iconian. So they don't know what's going on. Have you ever been in a situation like that where a lot is happening around you and there maybe people are speaking a different language, but you're like, something's happening. I don't know what. It could be good. It could be bad. Have you ever been there? And you're like, I don't know. Is this good? They don't know what's happening. They can't figure out what's going on, but they know that they are to worship these false gods. And it goes on to say this, but when the apostle Barnabas and Paul heard it, Realize what they were doing. They tore their garments, which means this is the greatest offense that could happen. Because they're about ready to give Zeus and Hermes credit for what the one true God actually did in that moment. They heard the name of Jesus. He was called up right in the name of Jesus, the crippled man. But they wanted to worship what they knew. And it was a huge offense. It says this, and it goes on to say, uh, they tore their garments and they rushed out into the crowd crying out, men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you. But listen to what they say. Here's their opportunity. But we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God. These things, they lead to nothing. You will waste your whole life, is what they're telling them, to worship something that's nothing. You have sacrificed so much for nothing. Why do you want to keep going and do nothing? Your hope can't be in these inanimate objects. Your hope can't be in these things that don't give life. And he said these things, they're vain living. And these are vain things to a living God who made the heavens and the earth and the seas and all that's in them. In the past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own way, but yet he did not leave himself without witness. Do you know what that means? 
He didn't leave it where you wouldn't look and go, wow, there must be a God. I'm having so much fun right now reading the scientific discoveries that are happening right now and more and more and more. And I'm not going to lie. More and more. Remember when, remember when God was out and science was in? Do you remember this, right? God is dead and science is, you know, God. But it's so interesting because the more deeply they look into inner space and the more deeply they look into outer space, scientists are baffled and they go, there must be something different here. I just listened to a scientist earlier today being interviewed and they were a devout atheist. And the other scientists asked them, what, uh, what changed your mind? And they said, ah, it sounds dumb, but like, and, and they're doing a lot of brilliant work. And they just said, I just, um, I felt like I heard a voice telling me that I'm going to be okay in my life. This thing is going to happen and it's going to be good. And it happened. And then I, I, I felt this, something speaking to me that was giving me a level of like, like optimism when I wasn't feeling optimistic. And I, I'm telling you, I was like, well, that's just the Holy Spirit for sure. God's doing his work even though they had said there must be no God. Now they're just saying, well, there might be something. There are so many things now where people are saying, we, 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 God is out, but God has left his signs everywhere for you. Every time you look at the sun, God has left his creation around, not to worship, but to point to him. You know, there is that accountability in that way, but he says, for he did these good things by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. If you just look at God, he's saying that the ecosystem was God's gift to you, and it's pointing to him. The nature is God's gift to you, and it's pointing to him. Your body, the way it works, is his gift to you, and it's pointing to him. I think as a believer and as a non-believer, Paul is pointing out, like, look at all these things around you. How could you not ask the bigger question? I'm not ashamed to do that. I just recently found out that the, the distance from the moon to here is almost the exact in equivalence to the distance from the earth to the sun. So that's why when there's an eclipse, it's almost perfectly lined up. I just thought like, what in the world? That like blew my mind. And, and maybe I'm a simple man and lots of the things blow my mind like that. But I thought, wow. That was just one of those things where I thought, God, like, like you, what you did is incredible. Like what, what you did is perfect. I think we should be in awe of these things we can't quite solve them with science quite yet. Verse 18, it says, even these words scarcely restrained the people from offering sacrifice to them. They just still couldn't help it. They were compelled to go to what they knew, but these things left them nothing. And they only worshipped them because they were afraid that they were going to be destroyed. All of most idol worship is fear-based. So we can just get through the next day and then we'll have to do a whole bunch of other things to the next day. And Paul comes with good news and it's still hard for them to hear. And I'm not going to lie. It's very difficult in our culture today when we bring good news of freedom. People still are drawn back to the addiction to 
desire for things above all else. We have, to, we have to challenge that in ourselves. We won't be a good witness if we do not break addiction of idols in our own life. You can't go and preach to someone else when you can't break it yourself. Right? So we as Christians must continually fight the resist, resist idolatry in our life or we will be a non-effective witness to anyone else. I, I promise you that. Charles Spurgeon, one of my favorite preachers, most prolific preachers of this of the last several centuries, he spoke the most sermons in history. So I think what he has to say is important. False gods patently endure the existence of other false gods. He's going to refer to some biblical gods here. Dagon can stand with Baal, like we see in the cities where lots of gods are there. Bel with Ashtaroth. How should stone and wood and silver be moved to indignation? But because God is the only living and true God, Dagon must fall before his ark, which was in the Bible. Baal must be broken, which is in Scripture. And Asheroth must be consumed by fire. God will not stand for an idol that wants to be God. I love that quote. This is when you know God is serious about idolatry. And I think it's a challenge and a call to us. And Paul, everywhere he went, brought the people good news that brought them away from dead idols that led them nowhere. Galatians to this group, Paul writes this letter to this particular group. And we'll get into this deeply next week. Verse 4, sorry, chapter 4, verse 8. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were slaves to those who by nature were not gods. But now that you know God, or rather are known by God, how is it that you are turning back to those weak and worthless principles? So there's very people who were literally set free from this idolatry given the good news, are struggling to fight for their freedom because they want to be drawn back into idolatry. People, this is not any different than us today as believers. We're always tempted all the time. But we must continually resist the temptation to place our heart, to place our trust and our hope, our adoration in any kind in the things that are not God. It doesn't mean that your family can't bring such joy in your life. But it, it means that we must always keep everything around us that brings us joy, even brings us a level of security in proper perspective to who God is. I read a, a quote from a pastor. I like him, but I didn't like his quote. This is just me. I don't agree with this. But he said, um, idolatry is anything that brings you uh, joy in your life other than God. And I thought, I don't know if I agree with that. God gave us life so we can experience joy, but our fulfillment and wholeness and where joy comes from is God. But it doesn't mean that you can't love those around you and even, even steward the things God's given you. But the moment they become more than God, you have a problem. And it must be dealt with, or it will be dealt with. The other thing that Paul does is once this situation happens, we see that he begins to transform culture relentlessly. I wrote this down. Fear is not a factor in a believer's calling to bring light and darkness in hardened, hardened places. Fear can never be what backs you down. Culture can ne should never, must never push you back into a corner and say, just be quiet. Culture should never have its dominant hand over you. Paul let this example for us. 
I got to I got to read this. It's it's such a good part of it. It says, but the Jews from Antioch and Iconium, right, traveled to Lystra. By the way, this is a hundred mile journey for them to go try to stop Paul from speaking the gospel. You got to really hate Paul to do this. A hundred miles back then, you could only travel 20 miles in a day. This is a big trip. It's like, honey, pack my bag. I got to go stop these guys. Like this was a huge deal. They travel 100 miles, and having persuaded the crowds who were just about ready to try to worship Paul and Barnabas, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city. This doesn't mean that they rose him, prayed over him, and he rose from the dead. It's that they were gathered around him because what happened is they stoned him where he was at with rocks about this big. They thought he was dead. They drug him out into where they dropped people who were stoned. The, it's a bad day at work. <laughs> it's not good. I want... That to sink in for a second because we look at Paul and we see his tenacity. He's not afraid. He knows who he serves and he knows who they serve. You know, I think when I've heard people say like, oh, that's it. I've had enough. That cynical person at work, they're just going to have to go to hell. <laughs> I've done. Paul, Paul had a bad day. You want to see his response? It's really good. It says, and on the next day he went on. Oh, sorry, sorry, no, no. He rose up. They gathered around him, and he rose up, and he entered the city. He, I mean, people. And goes right back into the city. It says, on the next day he went with Barnabas to Derby. And when they had preached the gospel to that city and made many disciples, they returned to Lystra, where he was stoned to death, to Iconium, where they tried to stone him, but he escaped, and to Antioch, where he was, beaten, he was threatened to be beaten and chased out of the city. That is how you transform culture. He went back because he was, he he, listen, he treats every convert like, like, like his child. He wasn't going to leave them abandoned. He wasn't going to leave them alone. This is Paul going forth and saying, we're going to transform culture. I'm not going to back down and culture will not beat me. Strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in their faith, saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And you know what I think about it? I, I, when I read that, I pictured the path to the kingdom. And I just pictured it full of people who, who've got some bumps and they've got some bruises and there's some, 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 some stories they've got to tell of difficulty. But it's not a smooth sailing trip to the kingdom. It's a rough road, and there'll be many trials and tribulations. And I think that you know you're on the path is when it becomes more difficult. It says, and when they had appointed elders for them in every city with praying and fasting, they committed them to the Lord and to those who believed. We're done with this section of scripture for today, but I want to encourage you. They end up going back through the rest of the cities down, and they sail to Antioch, and they celebrate and say, the door to the Gentiles is open. And he planted and established those churches, no doubt beat up, no doubt with scars, but that didn't stop him. 
And no doubt those cities began to tear down in their, in, in their hearts the affection for idols, worthless, worthless things, and grabbed onto what Paul knew that gave life. My encouragement to you today from reading this in Acts chapter 14 is definitely evaluate your life. If there's things that are pulling you away from your trust, your faith, your hope in God, then, then, then deal with it. Put it where it belongs. Phones are not bad. But what we make them might be concerning. Money is not bad. But what it becomes to us can be discerning. People murder over it. They steal they take. They think about it all the time. We, we have to put it into its right place as something that we get to steward. God must be the God that no God is before him. And I don't know, we don't have idols, but what I'll say is that we can make anything a God over God. Evaluate your life. Go home, think about it today. And just think about, what do I have that's in front of God? What is it that wants to, that takes my, what do I put my hope in first all the time? And put it in its right place. And secondly, and the last thing I'll encourage you into this is that, listen, the road to the kingdom is, is tough. But, but Paul was not afraid to, to, to literally transform culture, to push through, even though in culture, culture pushed back. I'm not about fighting at all. I think that's not Christ's way whatsoever. I am about tenacity. I am about sticking to your values. This is what Paul did. He didn't throw rocks back like, oh, that hurt. It threw it. No, no. I am about continuing the mission. The Bible is clearly about that. So I want to encourage you is that even when culture pushes back, hold your ground. Don't let it intimidate you. Don't let it push you around. Paul was probably in way over his head, surrounded by no one who was like him, and he kept standing strong. He got up and he went right back. Don't back down. The kingdom's path is littered with people who've had those challenges. And you're on the right path. Don't back down. But our goal is to go and bring people to true life, not lifeless things. But first get your life in the right order before you go out and start preaching to tell someone else how to do it. It's important we do that. Let's pray. God, we love you, and we thank you. God, I thank you for examples like Paul and his team, that even when they could have been worshipped, they chose not to, because they know the true God, the true creator. And God, help us as a people, right? Pay attention to what's around us. Pay attention to the culture around us. And God, give us the words to communicate to our culture around us the good news in the gospel like Paul did. And I ask that we just continue to walk in the spirit as we are encountering culture all around us. But our strength comes from you, not from approval, not from what everyone else thinks, but from what you think. And so, God, help us remain strong in our beliefs that there will be some suffering, God, but a suffering all for glory for you. And, God, I ask that just our church, 
our believers, and God, I pray for Christians all over, that they do not bend the knee to pressures or idolatry in any way, but they stand strong. This is how the landscape of the ancient world was changed, by, by men and women standing strong in their belief in you, God, that nothing could pull it away and nothing could pressure it out. And so, God, I thank you for that example. And God, I just thank you for today as we're going to celebrate two people's lives declaring publicly that I was once dead, but now I'm alive and I'm walking in a newness of life. And God, there's, there's nothing greater to celebrate for glory for you than a transformed life. Your creation connecting with the creator. We love you and we thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand with me this last song?